Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. And today I'm sharing with you an episode with possibly one of the most fascinating and adventurous people I've ever had on the podcast. Benedict Allen, benedictallen.com, that's B-E-N-E-D-I-C-T-A-L-L-E-N.com, is one of the world's foremost explorers. And he was kind enough to take the time to sit down and have a conversation with me in Malvern Theatres, upstairs in the empty and closed cafe, before he went on stage later that evening. So Benedict was hugely generous with his time, uh, taking about an hour out of his afternoon to speak to me instead of preparing for his talk on stage that evening, which I then went and saw. You can follow him on Twitter at Benedict Allen, and he's recently returned to the Amazon Basin, one of the first places where he ever went on expedition, to try and track down one of the tribes, the indigenous tribes, that he first encountered on his travels. Benedict is the writer of a plethora of books, including Into the Crocodile Nest, A Journey Inside New Guinea, Hunting the Guju, Into the Abyss, Edge of Blue Heaven, A Journey Through Mongolia, The Skeleton Coast, Journey Through the Namib Desert, and a BBC television series of the same name, and Mad White Giant. And he's the presenter of six BBC television series in total, as well as series for National Geographic television. He's the only person to have crossed the full width of the Gobi Desert alone, except for the camels he was with. And he's well known for his technique of immersing himself in with indigenous tribes and taking very little, if not no technology with him on his expeditions. He's also survived many near-death experiences, I think the count may be nine, including not least sewing up his own chest uh, chest wound with the kit that was meant to be used for mending his boots after he was abandoned by his guides in Sumatra. In this episode, and you can hear Benedict's huge knowledge, expertise and passion, it comes across in the conversation, We discuss his inspiration from his father, who was an air pilot, how he developed the mental and physical resilience to go on months-long solo expeditions in his early 20s. He describes enduring the brutal initiation ceremonies in Papua New Guinea with the crocodile cult that involved being beaten every day, five times a day, with bamboo blades, a ceremony that no outsider had ever experienced before. And he talks about encountering a snake in the Mongolian desert. And we talk about how exploration can help us understand the current mass extinction of wildlife that we are both experiencing and causing. I don't think I want to give away too much else the episode, although there's plenty more in here. But perhaps I'll stop there and say, as usual, that the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature and that you can find us at wildvoicesproject.org. You can follow us on Twitter, at wildvoicesproj, and you, you can subscribe in iTunes and in Stitcher. And we're part of Wild Voices Media, a global project bridging emerging storytellers and aspiring environmental professionals that you can find at wild-voices.org. Without any further ado... Let's dive into this episode about exploring to the ends of the earth, about the golden age of exploration that lies ahead of us, and about how a simple encounter with a snake in the void of the desert was very moving because that snake was on the side of the living, and about how we are all explorers. This episode, this conversation with Benedict Allen. Thank you very much for, 
for being on it. Um, I'm going to start where I usually start, which is by asking where your passion or enthusiasm for, in your case, exploring came from in the first place, if you remember. I think I do remember. I think, although you often wonder whether these things are imagined, but it, it, it seems to be my dad, who's a test pilot, and he was flying as part of a team, the Vulcan Bomber, which is a very, very charismatic aircraft, and this was the Mark II, which he was developing along with others, and, and it was a, a wonderful thing as a, as a baby to see your dad fly this thing overhead, and then as a toddler to see him still flying it overhead, and he tipped the wings of this, this magnificent V V-bomber, it was, it was with Delta, um, Delta wings, uh, so it, it's, it's an extraordinary aircraft with a great, uh, well, illustrious um, future because it was going to be carrying on nuclear deterrent, mm. like give an extra sort of awe. But nonetheless, the thing in itself, as a as a prototype, you know, this thing with these these huge engines leaving this great trail across the sky, uh, and to see your dad waggle the wings, it was almost like a not a salute to me. I suppose he was just saying hello and having a bit of fun. But for me, it almost seemed as I grew up a sign that I could be a little bit different, that I could put into practice somehow this desire I had to explore the world. And I, I strongly believe that we all are explorers. I'm no different from anyone else. We're all born curious. We all want to make sense of the world around us. But I had this lucky thing that my dad was a great role model. He was someone who was saying, I'm a pioneer. You could do something a little bit different too. And I thought, well, I want to be an explorer too. I, I, I knew even by the age of 10, that I'd be no good carrying the nuclear deterrent, you know, I, I thought, this is not me, I, I, I'm, I'm driven by passion, and you'll probably hear it in my voice a little bit later, or certainly now, you know, I get, I'm very, very intense, and, and I, um, I love giving out there, but on my own mission, and on my own terms, and I have a, a few of my dad's skills, perhaps, I've got a, I've got very quick reactions, I, I seem to be much better in a crisis, weirdly, than in normal life. With that, and that's got a worrying side, I think, because <laughs> it may be that I've always been drawn towards crises yeah. or to pushing myself, certainly. Uh, but nonetheless, as a little boy, it, it, was, it just made all the difference seeing that my dad was not an estate agent or an accountant, and there's nothing wrong with either of those professions. But it, it just was a signal that, wow, you can do something else. And uh, I clung on to this dream all the way through my boyhood. I, I started collecting fossils along the south coast of of England, uh, the, the Jurassic Coast as it's called, and uh, converted the garden shed into a little fossil museum. And I don't think anyone came, but it didn't matter, it didn't matter, I, I just, I was excited and passionate about the world, and my brother and sister, well maybe to some degree, but one became an editor, one became uh, an antique restorer, they didn't seem gripped in the same way that I was, mm. and I think part of that was, I was a bit of a loner, a little bit, I was a little bit stubborn. Um, and I was terribly worried about the state of the world. I don't know whether that was just because I spent so long wandering around country lanes and exploring and just dwelling on things too much. But uh, it struck me that I should, as a future explorer, as I saw myself, uh, I should find out about this world that we were just beginning to learn was in trouble. I mean, the planet would be okay, but the ecosystems were certainly... Uh, there were big alarm bells going. Uh, there was a, a scare about the ozone layer in particular. Um, and anyway, I went off to UEA, University of East Anglia mm -hmm. in Norwich, where the Climatic Research Unit was yeah. and, and still is. Yeah. And um, I was just became passionately interested in the world around. And it didn't mean nature as such. It was just everything from soils to uh, the climate, meteorology, geology, anthropology, archaeology. It was wonderful. Within this one building at, at UEA, there were all these experts. And I thought, this is the best education in being an explorer. Because this was the fundamental problem. Although I sound quite posh, uh, actually I had no money. Um, my dad was just a pilot. Um, my granny had a bit of a savings and she, you know, off I went to a public school because she used up her money, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so... People sometimes think I'm just sort of some sort of playboy adventurer, but um, we were scraping along, and the basic problem was you need money to be an explorer. Um, <laughs> this was becoming obvious to me by about, uh, well, certainly university stage. I managed to go on three scientific ex expeditions at university to Costa Rica, Borneo, uh, uh, Iceland, um, and on one of them, I, the British Museum of Natural History asked me to 
collect some insect specimens, and I forgot until the last day. I, 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 I got myself onto this expedition. A cousin yeah. very kindly got me involved in this thing. I was not qualified. I was just a student doing environmental science who wanted to be an explorer. But he kindly got me onto this expedition, and I found myself in, in Borneo, having been dropped there by a helicopter in Brunei, actually. Mm. And um, on the last night, I remembered I was meant to be stuffing this test tube full of insects. And I shoved them in. And that single act meant I discovered seven new species of fig wasp uh, <laughs> known to stop. Right. I mean, and, and, yeah. and that's a wonderful but appalling in that, well, A, my casualness, you know, I didn't really take it seriously. I just thought a few insects, I can say. And then, the, the, B, the, 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 the shock of realising that so little really was still known about the world. Because people say you can't be an explorer nowadays. That was a 19th century thing, 20th century perhaps. But, you know, by now we're into the 1980s. Um, so it seemed like something from the past. And yet this was quite a signal that there still was a world out there that we had very little understanding of, let yes. alone had yeah. studied. Um, so I basically clung on to this dream still of being an explorer, worked in warehouse uh, to get myself a bit of money. My mum and dad said, just stay at home. They saw that I was driven. You know, mm. I was determined to do this. Um, and it was so good in, in allowing me that one chance, effectively. And I decided to go off to the Amazon and try and cross through the northeast of the Amazon basin. And why, why did you choose that first expedition? What was it? Why was the Amazon your choice for your first solo expedition? You've been on these three scientific ones with other people, but really I know that you, you prefer to travel alone. I, I why do. choose that one? I have a horrible feeling that it was romanticism uh, because I'd, I'd read all these stories of Sir Walter Raleigh getting lost in the Orinoco Delta and uh, El Dorado. It, 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 it just seemed a, a glorious notion to learn from people who understood the forest uh, better, obviously, than I did. Um, and I, I felt there was a particular road called the Perimetron Norte, uh, which was going to cut through the northeast of the Amazon Basin, and it hadn't been completed. So people had begun one end and begun the other. I thought, if I headed from the Orinoco Delta to the Amazon Delta, I'd complete this road and see what was just about to be destroyed. Um, but at the heart of it, I think, I just thought, wouldn't it be amazing to learn? You know, it's very naive, very simplistic. Just, just learn from people who lived out there in this romantic world of El Dorado. I think that was the basis of it. But, you know, I justified it in all sorts of ways, saying, as an environmental scientist, I'll document this area and be witness to it. And I don't think I was so much of an individualist at that stage. I don't think I was so much wanting to do things on my own. But the practicality was, with no money, I thought, what I've got to do is learn from the local people. Mm. And it's their home, and they don't have any money either. I mean, it was that naive, you know. Go out there... And, and maybe they'll lend you a hand because they haven't got any money and you haven't got any money you've got something in common <laughs> it was that, that bad and I think my naivety and my vulnerability helped me hugely actually because people thought well I wasn't worth robbing for a start but, but I think they also felt this is uh, someone who's just an ordinary bloke who's doing his best I wasn't a logger I wasn't a gold miner I wasn't a one of the usual threats. Yeah. Um, and local people took me in, uh, gave me hospitality and helped me, and I was passed like a sort of package through the forest. Um, and it, 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 it was a difficult expedition, there's no doubt about it, and I can look back and laugh at it and my, laugh at myself. But uh, I got two sorts of malaria, I was attacked by gold miners, and it was, I was doing something that I wasn't qualified to do in that. I didn't have the skills to, to cope with such a long journey. But, on the other hand, I think the basic premise of the expedition was right, which is that there's another way of doing exploration, and it's, it, it's exploration has got this history of imperialism, and mm. I, we all know about it, you know, Columbus who asked for 10% or whatever it was of the rights to any land he got, and the way uh, explorers have it's been about territory and it's been about understanding the world from our point of view one way or another, if not actually planting a flag on that territory or on a mountain top. Um, and I think I was, I, w I wanted to hear a different point of view um, and this led beautifully into 
this idea, if you turn to the local people who see the forest not as a threat, not as somewhere you survive in. Survival is a sort of word, even nowadays, you hear it all the time, survival. Locals don't think about survival, they think about living. The forest gives them the food, medicine, shelter. Mm. And this hugely appealed to me, and I thought, I can be different, I was very earnest, I, I can be different, I can be an explorer who immerses himself instead of imposing, it's very idealistic. Um, and the next step was to go to New Guinea, uh, with a lot more people, because as you know, the Amazon was basically lost its population. Some people think there's only 5% of the original population of the Amazon. Uh, New Guinea is heavily populated, very difficult terrain. But I thought, um, step away from the Amazon um, and immerse yourself again, learn again from the local people. Perhaps learn why you didn't die the first time. I, I mean, I, this is me now thinking back, because I'm not someone who overanalyzes these things, but I think I felt uh, some sort of, not survivor's guilt exactly, but I was very disturbed by the fact that I had to walk three weeks alone by myself mm. through this place, struggling to survive every day at the age of 22. Um, and at and that I, age, where did the physical and mental resilience to do that and to survive it come from? Maybe from my dad, the test yeah. pilot. Uh, maybe just through fear. I, I mean, it was nothing very glorious in my, my journey. It was a scramble, and I desperately didn't want to let my mum and dad down. Um, I had youth on my side, um, and I think I had innocence on my side, in that I I just knew I had to get out of there somehow or other, because I, I uh, was way out of my depth. Um, but I, I, it was, the world was very black and white to me, as it is to any 22-year-old, perhaps, that uh, uh, I had a, a, a duty to my glorious expedition, but as that was crumbling, a duty just to get out. Um, Anyway, I, I, I got away with it, as it were, physically, um, and it, in the longer term, I think it explains why I then went through an, an initiation ceremony in Papua New Guinea. And again, I, I justified it at the time by thinking or saying, this is how exploration should be. And by the way, I called my first book Mad White Giant, and that was a sort of slight joke of myself, because the locals called me the Mad White Giant, because they couldn't think what earth. I was doing this bloke who was six foot four clearly couldn't hunt very well, not as well as the children amongst the indigenous groups I was living with. Um, but you know, it's beyond imagination why, why someone travelled alone through the forest. Um, but actually, it was a thin, thinly veiled attack, really, on our own kind. You know, the, the gold miners, the uh, loggers, the drug dealers, all the rest, missionaries and explorers who have gone in there with their outsider's mission. Anyway, that was the sort of person I was. I was sort of quite an angry young man still. And um, then the initiation ceremony. And yeah, it, w it was a secret, sacred ceremony. Uh, and it turned out to be thoroughly quite brutal. Um, it really was. And we were <laughs> with other initiates, uh, taken away and hidden away for as long as it took to become a man as strong as a crocodile. Which were, they, were they members, were they Westerners or members of the community? Oh, no, sorry, yeah, no, this is a, a ceremony that no outsider had gone through right. before, okay. no outsider in theory had witnessed before. Uh, this is a subgroup of the Yatmul language group, if that means anything to you, but it, the Nyara are very, very, uh, there's a crocodile culture in the area, and the Nyara are very proud to say that they are the strongest of all members of this the Ayatomol-speaking people, um, and there's endless wars backwards and forwards between different villages and different clans. <coughs> and by this is an anthropological interpretation, perhaps, but by adopting the crocodile as a role model, they felt they could well knock out the next door neighbours. Uh, crocodile is highly successful, top predator, uh, highly territorial, and they thought, what a great role model. Or so it seems. Uh, one way or another, they, they did emulate the crocodile. And uh, I didn't think too much about it, but I knew that these people were successful in their world, and I wanted mm -hmm. to understand why. And I've got a very high pain threshold, so it, it didn't really strike me as too worrying when I saw that pe people had permanent initiation marks up and down their chest and back. I mean, hundreds of scars that were like crocodile scales, effectively. And... Uh, yeah, they did. You know, it struck me as not the sort of thing 
that I would do at home um, and I knew that perhaps well there certainly was an alien culture and I didn't belong amongst these people on the other hand I, f I felt if they would do me this honour of letting me go through the ceremony which they were prepared to do uh, I'd learn something anyway what I didn't know was that we were beaten every single day five times a day so although <laughs> right the, although the the first day we got these initiation marks and we lost a, I suppose a litre of blood two pints of blood I couldn't even stand up after being cut repeatedly with bamboo blades, which is how we got the initiation marks. That turned out to be just the first day. And then there's the, the really serious bit of bonding us together. That's what the initial ceremony is all about. It's about learning how to work together. Because, of course, the rainforest is a highly competitive world. And you can't cope alone. So it's all about working together, learning your strengths, working, learning your weaknesses. Extraordinary chance also for me as an outsider to be amongst fellows who are about my age, I was 25, 24, 25, mm -hmm. um, and some were at that age, some were stretching down to about 15, 16, but the, we were all in it together as young men, uh, going through this intense, quite shocking experience, and learning about each other so close, so much, so thoroughly, you can imagine. My total isolation with these people for six weeks um, receiving these terrible blows, I've essentially been given a crisis all the time. Yeah. Anyway, I got got through it, and it was an extraordinary privilege. And I've often wondered why anyone would allow me to go through that ceremony. Why did the elders? And I went back a couple of years later to find out, and because I felt I had a duty to these people whose culture I witnessed and documented. Um, and it seems that I had just arrived at a tipping point for that particular culture. The, the young were leaving, as they do in all rural communities or mm. isolated communities, as you can imagine. They, got, they led away to the bright lights. The elders were trying to hang on, but there's a battle between the missionaries, essentially, who are trying to lure the younger ones away, and the towns that were luring the younger ones away. Um, and I came at the point when um, it was all on, on balance, and the, the elders were desperate for this extra little thing that would pull uh, the balance mat their way and I was that extra little thing <laughs> this outsider who said look you're not stone age you're not backward you're not primitive which is what the sort of labels they, they were attached to them yeah. I said I've just come here to learn about your ways and I, d I don't know if they're good or bad but I just want to learn about you because you, you clearly understand your forest and I don't um, again you know naive but it was open hearted um, and so they let me go through the ceremony and um, just to dig into that a little bit more, when you were going through the ceremony, what was what dialogue were you having with yourself in your head to get through that? If you can uh, remember that. Yeah, what dialogue was I having? I, a lot of it was about the business of exploration because I went in there essentially to record a, f a form of life, uh, a form of practice, a form of... Um, a way of of looking at the world or dealing with the world, perhaps. One way or another, the local people had, had, had assembled this right, created this right in order to survive better in that world. And having said earlier that people don't think in terms of survival, I think this is a community where actually they might have, because they were actually fighting with each other and they knew they'd be knocked out by the locals, the other locals, if they weren't tough enough. Mm. And they were very much talking in these sort of terms. Um, and I... So, I was there to, to learn and document, but I was also there to experience. And so there's a terrible tussle going on. Should I be standing back and observing, more like an anthropologist, or should I be immersing myself, letting myself go, allowing myself to be terrified, which is often people my age were, you see some bloke coming at you with them, and they weren't messing about with these great big sticks whacking us in blood all over the place, it's really brutal, yeah. we're, we're not talking about an, a, a, an easy ceremony <laughs> uh, should I be embracing it, should I be observing it, so there's tussle all the time, I wasn't particularly fearful I think I was still young enough not to be too afraid, I, I still thought I was immortal as young people do um I knew I was, I was one of the biggest physically, 
not strongest, but the biggest. <laughs> so, um, but they they kept on putting me in my place. They were terribly worried, the elders, that they'd be seen as decadent because they'd allowed this the first outsider in, and he was a white man. Mm. Um, so it looked, they might look bad from their point of view. They didn't want the locals. I say the locals. I mean rivals or other members of the seven clan group that this village was in. They didn't want them thinking they were the weak ones. Um, so they made an example of me several times, and that was um, that was quite shocking. So it was in the in that I was just singled out and beaten up. Um, <laughs> oh dear! But uh, you know, it, 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 it was good for me, not in the sense of punishment is good. It's just that it, it reminded me that I wasn't getting a special treatment. Mm. It's good for me to know that, and it's good for them to know that. Um, I found it very hard to deal with because yeah. I just wanted to turn around and either thump someone which I can do, but you know, I had to do something. Uh, or I want to walk out, and they'd say, look, if you walk out here, you're, you're not just disgracing us, you're not just embarrassing us. This our entire heritage, we have nothing without this. Um, and we'll just say, you've been eaten by a crocodile, we'll get rid of you. you know, there, was a, there, was a, there was nothing veiled about it. You know, mm-hmm. Something terrible would happen to me. Um, I don't know if it would or not, but... Um, it was an extraordinary time and it, it feels it felt like a very special time I'm avoiding the word privilege because I'm got up hearing TV presenters say it's such a privilege being learning about this and that um, but it was it, it was an extraordinary time and I'm very grateful to them even though it's a horrendous time yeah. <laughs> so it's very clear from listening to you that your voice in recounting the stories that you're telling is very similar to the voice that you use when you write. It's very vibrant, humorous, very engaged, very passionate. Where did the the need or the desire to write come from? That's interesting because I thought the voices weren't particularly like me actually. I think more lately there might have been. Uh, I was very keen. I wanted to do my first four books, I wanted to write in different voices. So my first one, Mad Red Arms, very bouncy. And the second one, Into the Crocodile Nest, was very terrible. That's certainly terrible in that I wanted to hold back a lot of the emotions. I wanted it to be a document that stood for the local people. We, they always stressed the elders that these marks, initiation marks, weren't our marks. Mm. Uh, they were marks that belonged to them. I thought the book should belong to them in that sense. Um, so I was right, very restrained there. But to answer your question, the books became a sort of cathartic experience for me. Each one of these experiences has been incredibly uh, emotionally draining, not really, because they're also emotionally stimulating. But I went through the mill every time emotionally and that was glorious and I was very conscious of the fact that <coughs> sorry. I was very conscious of the fact that this is voluntary, you know, I can never complain about what happened to me because I set off on my own, out of my own free will, scaring my mum witness, you know, I disappeared for six months at a time, um, no communication, I was immersed in another world, and that was terrible for my family, and yet it's my doing, and so I thought I could never complain, but the books gave me my chance to communicate, and I do think part of the duty, if I call myself an explorer, the duty, your duty is to interpret a place or document a place that's misunderstood or not understood or unknown and then share that that knowledge mm. <coughs> sorry <coughs> um, and you say that you you know when you when you went to UEA it was a time when we were beginning to learn about some of the environmental problems that the world was facing what has your what have your journeys and what has exploration taught you about if anything, about our relationship with the planet and the environment, maybe the differences between different cultures' relationship with the planet or the environment. Oh, that's such a... Sorry, that's a huge question. It's such a huge <laughs> question. It is so huge, I don't know what I, how I can begin. Because it's so dangerous to, to draw conclusions from such contrasting groups of people. The Nyara that I mentioned, who essentially emulated the crocodile, the Matses, who I live with in the Amazon, <coughs> who emulated the jaguar. Uh, they put spines in their lips to represent 
whiskers of a jaguar, their tattoos across their face like a cat. So they're looking to the jaguar perhaps as a sort of different sort of top predator role model and uh, they look to it for its intelligence, agility, strength. Uh, very, so it's, it's so dangerous to, to compare the two. The Nyara, so-called so-called crocodile people, they were battling it out, trying to preserve their territory, and that's really their main interest. Um, whereas the, the Matses, I'd say, in the Amazon, so-called jaguar people, they were, I, I'd say they were so much more immersed in the landscape, in the environment, and much more aware of the use of certain species for medicines in particular, I'd say. Um, so you could say their approach was much more sensitive. They were much more aware of degradation of the land. Historically, they were nomads, as opposed to most people, indigenous people who live in the Amazon who are semi-nomads. Most indigenous people, traditionally at least, would have a garden. They move on every three years, every five mm -hmm. years. The, uh, the Matses were moving all the time. So they had a much more intricate and intimate uh, relationship with the environment. But I would say that there's a couple of things. One thing is that as someone who was reliant for his life on very remote people time and time again and was helped time and time by them, uh, people seemed to me in the end just to be people and that became incredibly important for me to try and get across. I've used these labels like Jaguar people, crocodile people as a sort of shorthand and because that's what they would do. Uh, they, they don't hold back with these sort of things, you know, we're not so worried about labels and this sort of thing, and it's quite rightly perhaps. Um, but the... I suppose that they... In the end, I'd find in any community, whether they were in the Amazon or in New Guinea or up a mountain or in the steppes of Mongolia, I'd find jealous people, I'd find meek people, I'd find mild people, I'd find angry people, I'd find uh, happy, generous, kind people. The whole range of humanity was there. Obviously there's an environmental subtext or context, so the Nyara were busy battling it out, so they're in a war situation. Mm -hmm. so, and the, the man says, moving about the forest as nomads uh, avoided skirmishes. Um, but I'd say that a lot of my job has been trying to get rid of that exoticism. I've used it in that, uh, even on the cover of one of my books, Through Jaguar Eyes, there's a picture of someone with these spikes in her nose, mm -hmm. um, representing Jaguar whiskers. And so I'm saying, here's an exotic person, and then the idea is to deconstruct that. Perhaps gently, just perhaps through my adventures, but to say, in the end, these are people, and, and they're no different, they've just specialised. They've found a way of clicking into the forest in a way that we haven't. So, I'm being very slow in answering you, but uh, I suppose I'm saying that the biggest thing that I felt, and it's so obvious, I suppose, is that people are the same all the world over. But again and again, we don't want to hear that. We want to hear the people in the Amazon are role models, they're noble, they're, they're the shaman, the wisdom of the shaman. Mm. Um, and then on the other hand, we want to hear about cannibals. Uh, there was, in November I was delayed on an expedition through the Central Highlands. Um, so this being a big media story, what has happened to this person? It, um, and the thought was I was looking for a lost tribe and that became looking for a lost tribe of headhunters and then the, the oh, stories I think came I up. heard you on Radio 4 yeah. well yeah. yeah certainly a lot of people have been talking about me and all on my behalf and there was this headhunters or cannibals so we are so on the one hand we want perfect people out there and on the other hand we want cannibals it seems to be these are sort of union stereotypes or, or archetypes rather and we seem to want to find worse people than us and better people than us uh, this is why I'm so keen to push this message that actually people are no different and you may want them to be bad and you may want them to be good but it's much more complicated than that uh, some of the people I've lived with are not conservationists at all and yet they'd be seen as the perfect conservationists 
that's only because they haven't got access to a shotgun and um, technology to cut down that rainforest. Mm. So it's it, it's just because people are living, have found a sort of balance with nature, doesn't mean that culturally they will, if given the chance, wouldn't wipe out that nature. And that's a problem in itself, actually, the, the, the word nature, because almost universally I'd say that the people I lived with had no concept of nature. There was just the trees, the, flowers, the, the environment they used that was home. Yeah. And their name for themselves, like Matt says, would just be people. We are people, this is our home. Nature wasn't separate. So I think one of the first things our ancestors did when we started putting up fences and settling down and having agriculture was to think nature's out there. That's nature, yeah. And we are not nature. Yeah. And I think that's a real problem. I think it's a real, real problem. And if, I wish we could get away from that word nature. And that sounds a ter- terrible thing. And you and I, we know the value of what we call nature. But the problem is, we think of it as out there. Mm. And nature is everywhere. And we've got to try and break down those barriers between us and it. Um, does that make sense in any way? Do it does. It actually relates to a conversation I had last week for the podcast with someone called Sharon Blackie, who's, a, who's an author who wrote a book called The Enchant disenchanted life mm. um, and she touches on um, ancient traditions and communities like the Celts for example where women were very prominent often the leaders in the community, mm. the military leaders as well as the political leaders and also the custodians of the land but they again didn't see nature as something separate, they were just taking care of their home, of the springs and the wells that they relied on for water for example, um, so yeah it chimes really with mm. a conversation that I had only a few days ago. Yes, it's it seems, uh, yeah, it seems, um, yeah, and, and, well, I worry about what I've been saying, which is that a lot of people don't seem to be innate conservationists, because I think you've touched on a very important thing, which is that there is a value of resources, mm. of, of course, um, and uh, so the Matt says, yes, they, they would know they have to keep their water clean, they'd know that it's important to keep uh, the the monkey population going, and so there is a sensitivity to that, and no man's particularly sensitive to it because they're, they're that much more vulnerable. They've mm. got the backup of a garden, uh, and I'm reminded of that because there was a particular place that was known as the Wild Lake, Cocha uh, Brava, that the Matsis talked about, and they I wonder what this was, and they, they said they would f- refuse to go there. Their ancestors had gone there a long time ago, and it's disastrous because this is a big snake. There and it, it was a terrifying thing, and so it did largely become mythical. This threat uh, that was out there, the, the wild lake, and I went to the wild lake, and no, no one accompanied me the last bit of my journey through the forest. I didn't see a wild snake there, but it struck me as very, very important, at one level or another, for the the Matt says to keep this place safeguarded, because. Okay, maybe there was a threat there from these snakes. There was certainly a lot of naive mammals, jaguars, ocelots and so on who could be a problem because they hadn't any knowledge of man, but what it meant was that this place was a, a well uh, a, what's the right word, wellspring is that such a word in English? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> thank you there is, um, there is such a wellspring a a sump, no a fountainhead yeah. of life, yes. because no one hunted there, yeah. and this was an excellent way of, um, of, of keeping life being gen- regenerated in mm. the forest. Um, so, although I'd say a lot of the taboos against hunting and so on weren't there, and that given a shotgun and given this and given that, perhaps some of the people we think of as nature's guardians wouldn't be quite as noble about it as we like to imagine. Culturally, there are mechanisms in place that would safeguard that forest. It's when those traditions get eroded, as is happening all over the place, uh, that trouble starts. Mm. Okay, so from a ridiculously broad question now to a very specific one, um, are there any particularly memorable encounters with wildlife that you've had throughout your trips that you would Would pick up on? It's very odd because right from the beginning, I was always told the rainforest, the threats there are. Piranha, snakes, spiders, you can na- you name it. And uh, the threat has always been from humans. Or, almost universally, I think, uh, 
um, it's been the loggers, it's been the Pablo Escobar's gang uh, on the River Putumayo who started shooting at me as I went by. Um, these have been the threats, and this is what's so odd to me. As someone who's walked, I don't suppose there are many people who've walked quite so far alone through rainforests as I have, and that's not a boast, it's just because the locals think it's ridiculous and they think it's pointless. Uh, the mat says would not um, walk alone through the rainforest for more than a day. Um, just don't do that, and why, why go on a long journey anyway? Um, but I've never been struck up by a snake, um, uh, and never, uh, yeah, never really been threatened. Um, funny enough, at that lake, uh, the wild lake, I, I, I felt threatened by something that was like a, a very large ocelot. Ocelots are not um, deadly, but I was so spooked out by the Matt says, my tutors, the local indigenous group who refused to go there because they're so terrified. Um, I got locked up about it. Um, but no, I mean, wildlife encounters, there have been others. Um, I remember coming across a snake in the Gobi Desert, and I hadn't seen anyone for probably two weeks, three weeks. I was walking across the Gobi Desert with my camels, and I came across a snake, and I was so excited by this, because as someone who was trained in rainforest to to look after himself and was wary of snakes, even though they were never presented a real threat. Well, not usually, anyway. Um, not a sort of everyday threat. Suddenly the snake was on my side. It was a, something alive, and I felt it's on, it, it's on the side of the living. And that simple encounter was very, very moving out in the desert, which seemed like a void. It seemed like it was a place of... of, of not just a no man's land, a no thing land. It was a, just an empty space, and I thought, wow. And this afraid it was a, it was an adder. It could have bitten me, but nonetheless, it was on my side, the side of the living. Mm. And deserts helped me feel how important life is, because I couldn't help feeling after year, year after year, living in places like the Amazon, Borneo, New Guinea, I felt a bit oppressed. You know, for all this life. Um, and yet, there, it was a reminder how, how valuable life is. Okay, I've just got a few sort of more quick fire questions okay. to close yeah. off with. Um, the first of which being, um, it'll take as long as you want to answer, but the questions are shorter. The first of which is, are there any particular failures or mistakes that you made, I'm sure, I'm sure the list might be quite long actually, that proved to be important learning points for you? Oh, <laughs> uh, where do I begin? <laughs> oh dear. I think... Um, uh, I remember I met the Duke of Edinburgh once um, and he said uh, I, I had to present gold medals for the Duke of Edinburgh uh, at Buckingham Palace it was very nice and there were other, other, various other people doing it as well I would say um, but I had to I met that was Prince Philip and he, he said so did you get a gold when you did your Duke of Edinburgh's award I said actually I didn't even take it he said, that's, that's exactly why you had to become an explorer, isn't it? The rest of your life, <laughs> you've been out there because you didn't get your gold medal, you've been pining for it. Um, and it's quite, it's quite a funny remark, but it, um, very early on, I was just determined to do things my way. And I, the school had a sort of cadet course uh, for people who want to be in the military or the in one way or another, the mm. Navy, the Army, the Air Force. Yeah. I didn't want to do that because I thought that's not explorer like. Um, Duke of Edinburgh's Award, that was another thing. It's all too organised. I want to do things on my terms. And I think that independence or arrogance um, meant I learnt a lot slower at first. I think it meant I learnt a lot quicker later on when I got into the. I found a way to my way, which was to, to work in a warehouse and just get out there and learn from local people. I think I learned very rapidly from local people. Second thing, a general sort of thing I got wrong was that I, I felt as I'd be some an explorer who's a little bit more heroic, uh, rather like Indiana Jones. I thought I'd be this person who was once doing the right thing, and uh, did I don't think he always did the right thing, Indiana Jones. But <laughs> but nonetheless, he was meant to he was meant to be an academic in theory. And he was going in there and coming back with answers. Um, I suddenly realised, uh, and this is it's very early on, really, in my career, that, that I had to be more like a child. I had to start learning from the locals, 
but particularly from the children. And that was partly practical because the children had much more time and more, were more impressed by me than the adults who thought I was a disaster, no good at hunting, no good at anything, I was just wasting their time. But they shoved me with the children. Um, and I realised their skill level was about mine, or better. And um, so I think that humility, it took me a bit of time to get any sense of humility. Um, yeah, I can't... It, 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 so I think my approach had to be reworked totally. Um, what else have I got wrong? I mean, so many everyday things. I'm still not... Uh, I'm still not, not getting it right. But I think it, mistakes have been incredibly important for me. And I, I, I've got three children now, and I want them to make mistakes as soon as possible so they can... A, a learn about bouncing back. So mm. much more important than winning. I, I don't really care if my children win something, but I want them to be resilient. It's such an important thing. You know what it's like in life. It, so important whether you n- never set foot uh, into into a national park or anything just in, in terms of life learning to bounce back yeah. important. so I want them to learn very quickly um, and uh, yeah I think uh, I was very lucky learning very early on what I wanted to do with my life incredibly lucky having that that sort of clear vision or clear idea um, but I think I, I, it took me quite a long time to be resilient because I was determined to do it by myself and you can't do things alone. So I think I would have been much, much better to gather around with like-minded people. And, and uh, I did wonder about going into nature conservation as a, with the Norfolk Naturalist Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I was so big-headed, I, just, I felt I had to get out there. I, was, I, was, I had a sort of energy about me that I, I just needed to run off, you know. Lose that energy. Um, are there any books that you particularly often recommend or give as a gift to other people? Hmm. I love the Snow Leopard by Peter Matteson. Well, that's the second time that's come up. I think. Oh no! No, no, no. That's good. Uh, that means I have to definitely go and read it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it appeals because, in a way, it's such a personal account. Peter Matteson, the great American naturalist, zoologist, really. Uh, who set out into the Himalayas with another naturalist, Roshana, to to find a snow leopard? And he does he even glimpse one at the end? It, it doesn't become important. He certainly doesn't get a really good sighting um, because it's all about a journey into another space. And and for him to come to terms with a loss, because um, uh, a, a loved one has died. Um, so it is very personal. His, his experience, but there's something about Peter Matteson as a writer that's I find compelling because he's such a he's so very aware. He wrote another book called The Tree Where Man Was Born, and I I love his sense of, of his ability to observe, his accuracy, and his there's that awareness, that, that ability to take in the world as it comes along. Mm. Um, yes, I. Uh, a great early influence on me was uh, Lawrence van der Post, um, Lost World of the Kalahari, Venture into the Interior. Those are two books that meant a lot to me, even as a child. I don't, I couldn't say I really understood them as a child, especially Venture into the Interior, which I think is harder to sort of grasp. But I love the sense of this man accepting that he was vulnerable, saying that he didn't have all the answers, and above all, turning to the local people and. and asking about their lives. He did this very early on, um, in the 50s, in the 60s, when people didn't really do that sort of thing. Mm. So I suppose I, I hoped I would be someone like that, maybe more like that than uh, Wilfred Thessinger, who's someone I got to know later, uh, who's very much the archetypal explorer. But there's always, however much immersed he was in a landscape with the people, Never quite felt he was. Hmm. Never quite felt he was. There was always a distance between him and the locals, and he he felt that was important. And maybe he was right. Maybe you have to keep a distance between yourself and another culture. But um, anyway, it was. Lawrence van der Post said that there's a a poetry about his writing which appealed, but. Uh, his his mind 
seemed to immerse itself in that landscape and amongst the local people. Um, and finally, uh, if you could put a quote from someone else or a message from yourself on a billboard for thousands or millions of people to see, what might it be? <laughs> the golden age of exploration lies ahead. Mm. Because it drives me mad, and it's driven me even more mad since my time in New Guinea in November, when I was five days late peering out of the forest, and the world had decided I was lost. I was, I was mad. I was this ridiculous nineteenth-century explorer in the tradition of Sweet Stanley Burton. You know, all these people um, that I was a leftover from another era, trying to live as if uh, of that time because I refused to go with the phone because I didn't take a GPS um, I did that because I've been doing it for 35 years and I wanted to always look the local people in the eye that's why I don't use the word tribe, I keep saying this word local, which sort of <laughs> doesn't help perhaps, but I just I, 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 just, I wanted people who helped me who guided me along uh, to, to feel that I had no advantage over them, that I had placed my life in their hands. Mm -hmm. And it's what I've been doing for ages and ages and ages, all through my life. So I'm an expert, as I, as I see it, in, in that world. But I was sort of condemned as someone who's sort of backward. And it's so very sad because the world is facing another mass extinction, thanks to the human being. We need to understand the world uh, more than ever, faster than ever, and the great thing is, uh, exploration is much more democratic now. There was this elite who used to set off. Nearly all of them, certainly in the nineteenth century and twentieth century, were from the sort of what you might call public schools or the upper middle class people who had money or, uh, or privilege. They set off to define what the world was like. Um, of course, there are exceptions, Livingstone and so on, Stanley even, but. Um, now the world is that much more accessible to all of us and it's a great chance for ordinary people to get out there and we need to remember that we all are explorers because that's what makes us human. This comes back to the beginning of our conversation. Uh, we need to remember that and not not feel that the world out there is, is, is somewhere else. Mm. It's, it's open to all of us and furthermore we need to get engaged because there's a crisis ahead. don't need to be a scientist don't need to be a specialist, uh, but you do need to observe accurately and, and record what you see. Well, I think unless there's anything that I haven't asked about or anything else you want to say, I think that's a great note to finish on. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you very much. That was hugely enjoyable. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.